everybody, and welcome to Scorch Justice, the podcast covering the murders of Jessica Lynn Chambers and Ming Sheen Show. And I'm Woody Overton, your host. So when I left you last, I was telling you about what the investigators were doing in the investigation death of Jessica Lynn Chambers, who was found burnt alive, literally, on December the 6th. I was telling you about how investigators had interviewed over 465 people named Erica Derrick. They got nothing, right? The investigation goes, and it goes. Someone turned in Jessica's car keys. They were found thrown on the side of the road, and the guy picked it up. He was walking his baby, and he gave the keys for the baby to play with, and then at some point he called the sheriff's office out, and they picked up the keys. He, he thought it might be related to Jessica because of her dad's auto mechanic business keychain on it, right? So I forgot about that, but that's neither here nor there. We'll get to that later on. Now, I told you about all the people that they were interviewing and everything else. One of the people they interviewed was Quentin Tellis. Now, Quentin Tellis, by his own admission, had been with Jessica until approximately noon on December the 6th. And supposedly Jessica picked him up. There's conflicting stories that say that she picked her friend Lakeisha up first, or some say that picked Quentin up first. So Quentin and Lakeisha's stories differ on that point, but it doesn't matter. At some point, she picked Quentin Tellis up and they rode around or busted a loop and smoked some weed. She brought him home around noon, and we know that she went back to her house and she took a nap, and then later on she gets a phone call. She tells her mom she's going out, and then that'd be the last time her mom ever sees her alive. And around 6.40 something in the evening, she got a call, she being her mother, Lisa, got a call from Jessica stating, hey mom, I love you, I'll be home later. So, but Quentin tells him, yeah, that's right. I was with her, but she, and then they asked her about the nature of their relationship. He was like, oh, there's really nothing to it. She sold me some weed, right? And the, he, they asked him, was it, you know, a sexual relationship? Oh, no, 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 no. We didn't have any kind of relations like that or anything. He totally downplayed it. And he even goes so far as to give them the name of a guy named Derek who, was supposedly harassing Jessica, right? And that, that guy was proving out, y'all, during the course of the investigation that he was at home, believe it or not, rubbing his mama's feet. His mama was a diabetic, and he was at home that night uh, at the time of the fire rubbing his mama's feet. So it didn't play out. But that's one of many things they did. But they also, they being the investigators, sorted through over 200,000 phone records. Now, 
give it, you know, this takes a little while, right? The, the, to go through that amount of phone records and figure out who Jessica was talking to and who she wasn't talking to, et cetera. And they interviewed Quinn the first time. During the first week of January, they went back and re-interviewed him. His first interview was on December the 10th of 2014. The first week of January, they go back to interview him again, and he gives them an alibi for 30 minutes after the fire, which officers confirm. We'll get to that in a second. But the FBI interviewer starts to question him, and he changes his position from the fact that they were just friends and had not been sexual to admitting to having sex with Jessica in the field on the side of his house in her car. He even went so far as to mention that when they did it, they laid the passenger seat back in her car, and that's where they had sexual intercourse. He then takes the investigator to the shed that's on the property. Y'all, I've seen this. I remember I told you I had boots on the ground there. I wanted to see this building for myself. When I say it's a shed, that's being generous. It's a little shack. If you're looking straight down the driveway, it's a little shack painted white now, just to the left of the driveway. But he takes them there for whatever reason and shows them the gas can. There's an empty gas can in there. And he said, that's what I keep my gas in. Uh, okay. Me, as an old investigator, you know, even if I happen to peer in the window before I come to your door and I see that, and you know, if I ask you, do you I didn't, there's no proof that this happened, but if I ask you, do you have a gas can? I'd be like, yeah, 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 just let me show it to you. You know, but hey, meanwhile, guess what, bitches? I'm alibied out for 30 minutes after the fire. Quinn tells him again that he absolutely did not see Jessica after she dropped him off on December the 6th at his house after they busted a loop and smoked a joint and Lakeisha was in the car. That was around 12, approximately 12 p.m. on December 6th. So Quentin's alibi for the 30 minutes, what is it, right? He said at a little after 8 p.m., he was buying a phone card for his girlfriend in Louisiana to come see him. And she did come, y'all. He was buying that phone card in Batesville, the next town over. Now, I drove it. It takes about eight minutes to get from his driveway to the store he said he was at. All right, but this is what he's telling investigators. He said he went back to Cortland after buying the phone card, and that's when he heard about Jessica being burned. They must have asked him something like, when was the last time you talked to her? Do you have any text messages? And he was like, nah, nah. So he said, when I heard she was burned up, he said, I deleted everything, all her information off my phone. Everything. And, and it's, why'd you do that? And he said, because she wasn't around anymore. I'm like, holy shit. 
me as an investigator, oh, I'm all up in that ass now. I'm about to go pull. I'm going to get a warrant. I'm about hook or crook. I'm going to get a warrant. I'm going to find out your text messages and everything else, right? But here it is. Second interview. Y'all, the one thing that never changes is the truth. He lied in the first interview, downplayed his relationship with her, which I still don't believe that it was sexual, right? But it doesn't matter what I believe. It's what you can prove. Downplays his relationship with her. Remember, they had only known each other for like less than 10 days, but they got all the texting going back and forth. And at some point, you know, he had asked her, for sex, I think that day, on December the 6th, and she just laughed it off. But the, the FBI verified his alibi, that he was in Batesville, and that he purchased a prepaid credit card at 8.26 p.m. on December the 6th. Y'all, that was just a couple minutes after the 911 call. So from his house, Maybe it's a 15 minutes from that store to the crime scene, all right, total. But he, they, I mean, shit, they got him. They got him on tape in the next town over in Batesville, buying a card at the time that first responders are, are seeing her coming out of the woods on fire saying, help me, help me. All right, y'all, so I guess, you know, while they're still combing through these 200,000 plus phone records. They had enough common sense to realize when they started looking at it that Jessica and Quintellos were communicating a lot. That's why they go back in January and re-interview him. And he changes his story. Huge red flag. Now I'm going to get some of that ass if I was the investigator, right? But meanwhile, what's happening? Derek Eric, Derek, Eric. These motherfuckers got tunnel vision to the point they probably interviewed every Derek and Eric for four states, but we know it was over 470-something of them. But if that evening when I get back in my jam session, I'm sitting around with the investigators, what'd you learn today? And let's get our plan together for the next one. Fuck you. I'm riding on some Quentin Tellus, all right? Because you didn't have to lie to me. Now... When he tells you, he changes his story from, uh, you know what, we were just friends and bought some weed from her. Nope, never never saw her after 12 a.m. Wasn't physical relationship. Well, bitch, when you change the story from it wasn't physical relationship to taking me to the side of the house and saying, well, you know what, yeah, we screwed. And this is where we'd screw and we would screw in her car. But when he fucking says we would lay the seat back and that's where we would have sex, I'm telling you that it's just off the charts. My meter would have been off the charts. My get me some juice meter. My I'm bitch, I'm going to get the information on you or I'm going to work you hard, hard, hard and maybe not focus so much on Derek and Eric's until I can disprove you because you just gave me a piece of information that her car seat, maybe Tellus didn't realize what he was saying. He's trying to suck up to these guys, y'all. And look, I've done hundreds of thousands of hours of interview and interrogation, and I get it. 
Some people you have to be hard on. Some you have to be soft on. Some of them want to be buddy-buddy with you. I think Quintellus believed that as long as he can keep these guys and be buddy-buddy, he's overly, he's offering too much information. He fucked up when he offered about the seat being laid back in the car. But then go so far as to take him to that white shed I told you about where the gas can is. Mm, yeah, we're on your ass now, buddy. But not so much. Case kind of goes cold, y'all. Believe it or not, the time goes on. But let me tell you what happened in Quentin Tellis' life during this time. August the 8th of 2015, so eight months later, within eight months, Quinn moved to Monroe, Louisiana. And for those of y'all who don't know, Monroe, Louisiana is in the extreme northeastern part of the state. It's not that far, actually, from Panola County. Probably, I'm guessing, two hours tops, right? So on August 8, 2015, he moves to Monroe and marries a girl named Chiquita Jackson on August the 8th of 2015. Mandy, that's what I'm gonna call her, that's what everybody called her, was described as friendly. Everybody said she rode her bike around town. She gave candy to kids and was thinking of moving to Australia for her job. On August the 8th, 2015, her neighbors reported a bad smell coming out of Mandy's apartment in Monroe. And y'all, I've been there. It's your typical apartment setups with the staircases in the middle and the doors and your apartments on either side. You know, you're going to see your neighbors when they come and go. It's just, I mean, Monroe's not really just a college town, but it is that is a huge part of what it is. It's a pretty big city. It's the second largest city in North Louisiana, only behind Shreveport, Bossier. This apartment complex, you're not walking up to it without being seen. It's a, it's a students are coming and going, people are coming and going all the time, and and. Yeah, you know, most apartment complexes like that, college students, whatever, you can know your neighbors, especially if you're from Taiwan. And it's not like you, you're going to have relatives living by or friends from high school that you're going to be hanging out with. You know, so you're going to get to know your neighbors. They open up her apartment, all right, and they go in and they discover that Mandy has been murdered. She had superficial puncture wounds to her neck and chest. By superficial, y'all, I mean like, if I'm on top of you and I stick the knife in, I'm sticking in just enough to make you hurt, right? Like torturing you. I'm not trying to kill you. If I'm trying to kill you, I'm gonna plunge it into your heart or whatever. But she had a bunch of superficial wounds 
to her neck and her chest. Cops come out to work it, and it's evident that she's been down for a while, okay? I don't know the exact amount of time, but she'd been dead for a period of time, okay? The cops are talking to the neighbors, working the case like they should, and one of the neighbors reports meeting Quentin two weeks before Mandy's body was found. And the neighbors said they were walking down the stairs, and they saw this black male, it turns out to be Quintellis. And he just unsolicited starts to ask him questions about Mandy. That neighbor said was like, What the fuck? You know, he said it really made me uncomfortable that I'm just this random guy who I don't even know, I've never seen him before, is standing at the bottom of Mandy's staircase and just starts asking me questions about her. And this was two weeks before her body was found. And I think, y'all, the estimate was that she had been murdered for something around that period of time. The cops in Louisiana do their job, all right? They identify Quentin, however, and they end up pinging Quentin's phone within 200 feet of Mandy's apartment on the night she was murdered. And on August the 18th of 2015, Quentin is seen using Mandy's bank card at an ATM to make a withdrawal. Louisiana cops arrested him for unauthorized use of a debit card, even though they didn't have anything to time to her actual murder yet other than He's using the dead lady's car, right? I get it. I'd have done the same thing. You get him in on whatever charge you can, and that's pretty serious. I mean, how the fuck are you gonna explain that? You're using her card after she's dead. You have her PIN number to her card after she's dead. You were asking questions about her to a neighbor shortly before her death. I mean, that's a lot of circumstantial evidence, right? But one thing you can do on a case like this, and I would have done the same thing. Well played, well played, Louisiana, Wichita Parish, whatever parish it is. I think it's Wichita. They're like, holy shit, we got him using her card. We know he didn't know her before the state because he's asking questions about her. Fuck it. Hook him and book him. Right, And then we'll come at him and see what he's going to tell us about his relationship with Mandy, what kind of alibi he's going to try to give, et cetera. Because you don't have enough evidence to charge him with the murder. But you can't rule him out as a suspect. I still would have worked. I don't think she'd have family members there. I know she didn't have any family members there. Uh, I would have tried to find out if she had any kind of boyfriend or whatever, which she didn't. So, I mean, shit, you you can't get off of Quintellis on this one. Now, who the fuck else is running around using Manny's card and, and knows her debit number? So they don't rule them out as a suspect, but there's no DNA or physical evidence to leak him to the homicide of Mandy. What do you do?
they did exactly what I would have done. They booked his ass and they charged him for unauthorized use of an access card. I forget what the statute is for it now. And that carries the maximum in the state of Louisiana of 10 years in prison. He fought it and they fuck it. He lost. They gave it to him. He took 10 years. Now, let's talk about the justice system on this point. I still think it's well played, but this wouldn't have happened overnight, y'all. They would have developed him as a suspect. They established that he's using her shit. They established you know, him asking questions about her. And they established some other things. Like there was a video from Walmart where he was in the car with her or something like that. But they don't have enough for the murder. But damn it, you got him on, on the access card. So you're talking to the district attorney about it because you really want to get his ass for the murder. And they were like, nope, nope, so, sorry. And you know what? Sit back and wait because on a murder case, you only get one shot. Well, all cases, you only get one shot, but in a murder case, it's really important. You fuck it up, then you're done. They get him to plead guilty, but they give him 10 years. Well, guess what happens? That's 10 years that you get to work this homicide case. And what you're hoping for as an investigator is that someone comes forward and provides some type of information, right? That you can use for the prosecution of Mandy's homicide. All right, let me tell you about Quintellis, a little background on him. He had an eighth grade education. Neither here nor there, I'm just telling you the facts, okay? And Quinn had been arrested and in jail numerous times. In 2006, he was arrested for fleeing a police officer, or that's Louisiana Revised Statute 14108. 2007, he catches a burglary charge. In 2009, he catches a larceny and a burglary charge. All right. So, y'all, the fleeing from a police officer, unless it was in a vehicle or whatever, that probably was a misdemeanor. The 2007 burglary, that's a straight up felony. 2009, larceny and burglary, that's two felonies. Okay. Why do you do burglaries? To take somebody else's shit, right? 2009, he was arrested for possession of marijuana. 2010, he's arrested for driving under the influence. 2011, he's arrested again for burglary. Now, you would think, that's one, two, three, four, five, six charges. You'd think the cops would be tired of dealing with this fuck stick, right? That you know, he's a frequent flyer. He's progressing. As you can see, his criminal career is progressing, and you want to put him away. But in 2011, when he went to jail, he joined a gang. Now, jails are a totally different world, y'all. I have my corrections experience, and you can listen to it in real life, real crime. I tell some stories about jail, but it's just a totally different monster when you that gate closes behind you. Doesn't matter how bad of a dude you are, you better side up with somebody, right? And that's why gangs are so prevalent in jail. But he joins uh, the disciples, the gangs for the disciples in jail, all right? And he spent three years in y'all. Three years, I guess they got tired of fucking with him and when like he took a plea. He gets out, 
in October 2014, he's released from prison. But even while he's in prison, he's an asshole, okay? They said he was not a good inmate and had lots of infractions. Now let's talk about that. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life is full of twists and turns, stress, changes, grief, moments of growth, and moments where we feel like we're taking a few steps back. And it's important to show up for yourself through all of the struggles that life can bring. BetterHelp Online Therapy is here for the twists and turns and will assess your needs and can match you with your own licensed professional therapist in less than 48 hours. Y'all, I use it. I'm telling you, I've got so much going on. It just helps me to be able to talk to a professional and they can give me a different insight and tell me how to better take care of myself. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online and the services available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room with additional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. BetterHelp is a great way to show up for yourself and invest in your well-being because, well, you deserve some inner peace. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily. Visit BetterHelp.com. That's Better H-E-L-P and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. Special offer for Scorch Justice listeners. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash S-C-O-R-C-H-E-D. That's 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com S-C-O-R-C-H-E-D. That's BetterHelp.com slash Scorched. When you're in prison, you have a prison rule book, okay? And they have what they call high court and low court write-ups. Basically, it's the rule book that you have to follow to stay out of trouble while I'm in prison, okay? Low court write-ups could be anything from not making your bed correctly to calling a correctional officer sergeant or whatever, just something small. And But guess what happens? When you break the fucking rule, they will write you up. I did it. I used to be a corrections officer for a long time. And they write you up. I'm talking about the low court write-ups now, y'all. They write you up. Say, on such such date, a uh, correctional officer so-and-so gave inmate so-and-so a direct verbal order to make his bed. And he refused, right? And so I would write him up and then turn in the report, and he gets a copy of the report, and he has to go before a low court. And a low court 
that's not they don't take them out off the prison. The, the the low court and the high courts in the prisons are held on the prison grounds. And you go before like it's usually like one civilian and and a correctional officer and somebody else. They hear the case, they ask them how do you plead guilty or not guilty? And they probably pled Quentin probably pled not guilty and they were like, tell us what happened. He said what his version of what happens. They send him out of the room and they make their decision and bring him back in and it might give you like you know, 10 days, no radio, some bullshit like that, okay? A high court write-up is more serious shit. A high court, you can actually, most of them could be a street charge, meaning that you could could be brought into the criminal justice system and charged and given more time for these. The But a high court write-up is anything from attacking or fist fighting another inmate with weapons, uh, raping another inmate, attempted escape, selling dope, whatever, and anything, any kind of serious charge. Now, let me back up and tell you this. Most prisons are dormitories, meaning it doesn't matter what you do to go to prison. It's when you get to prison, it's how you act that determines where you live. Now, when you go into the DOC, to the Department of Corrections, you're going to get processed and you're going to live in a cell with somebody else while they classify you to where you need to go. Then they'll ship you to whatever prison you're going to. And once you get there, generally, nine times out of ten, doesn't matter, make a shit if you're a murderer or not, unless you're a gang risk or an escape risk, something like that, or you attacked officers before or whatever, then you're going to be put in a dormitory. But if you get arrested for a serious charge, a high court write-up, and you get found guilty, they will send you to a working cell block or a WCB. And that's where you have to do, in the state of Louisiana anyway, you have to do 90 days without a low court or a high court write-up before you can go back before the board and they determine whether or not you are fit enough to live in population again without causing shit, right? Well, guess what happens? If you're on your first day, your 90 days, and you get rode up, you got to do your whole 90 days. And you, then you go before the board, and they automatically turn you down. You know if you get rode up, you can act ass the rest of the time. You're going to get turned down no matter what, right? So Quentin was this kind of guy. He had lots of rule breakings, et cetera. Then he got called a contraband and, and not obeying the rules. So his his time in prison and joining up with the gang, the gang offers protection, right? But guess what? In the gang, they have to put in work. And when they say putting in work, that means they're selling dope, they're moving contraband, they're doing whatever, beating up on somebody, raping somebody, whatever it may be. Or if you don't do it, then the gang turns on you. So, just give me some background on Quentin Tellis. He gets out, released from prison. I'm not sure y'all if he was on parole or not. I haven't confirmed that, so I don't want to say it. But he gets out in October of 2014. In November, he's back in Cortland, Mississippi. And he meets 
Jessica Lynn Chambers just a few days before her death. As I told you, eight months after her death, he's moved to Louisiana. On the day that Mean Child's body is found, or Mandy, he marries a girl from Louisiana. Think about that. But she'd been dead for like two weeks. His alibi for the night when Jessica was burned alive is that he went to the next town over. And I think he actually said he tried to go to Winn-Dixie to buy a prepaid debit card first because his girlfriend was coming in from Louisiana, whatever it may be. He, get, he buys this credit card. Where'd he get the money? Bitch just got out of prison. Right? Fast forward. Mandy's dead. Louisiana cops do the investigation. They find the witnesses and everything that can establish the relationship between Quentin Tellis and Mandy. She's brutally murdered, y'all. She had like 30 different stab wounds to her body. Brutally murdered, but a lot of them were superficial. Almost like she was being tortured. How'd he get her pen number to her card? Fuck you, if you tell torture me, I'm gonna give you my pen number. Praying that you'll go away. But it's for money again. He's seen withdrawing the money from the ATM. Immediately after Jessica Chambers is burned alive, he's seen buying prepaid credit card. His past criminal history, the progression of it, burglary, larceny and, and burglary, possession, DUI, burglary again. Pattern there? I certainly think it's worth looking at. His alibi for Jessica Lynn Chambers while she's in the road saying Eric or Derek help me, that he's in the store paying cash for a prepaid credit card. Change the story. When they go back to re-interview him in January from not really knowing her, other than we, we smoked a joint together, she sold me some weed to when they come back, oh yeah, well, you know what? I wasn't exactly honest. Yeah, I knew her more than that. But guess what, y'all? He didn't know what they had or didn't have at that point in time. Takes him around the side of the house and says, this is where we have sex. We did it in her car. We do it by laying the passenger seat back. Jessica's car is on fire. Firefighters are there putting it out obvious the passenger seat is laid back 
on our next episode. I'm going to really dig into Quintellus and his story and the accusations made against him. And it's important. Remember now, he's doing 10 years in the state of Louisiana for using a dead lady's credit card. Scorch Justice is a production of Cloud 10 Media and Real Life Real Crime Productions. The show is executive produced by Cindy and Woody Overton and Sim Sarn for Cloud 10 Media. Matt Provisano is our supervising sound editor. The music is by Josh Cook. Artwork by Brian Stephanie. Be sure to download, subscribe, and like Scorch Justice anywhere you can download a podcast. You can follow me, Woody Overton, on Instagram at Overton Woody and at Real Life Real Crime to hear what I've got coming next. Thank you. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.